The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm your host for the podcast. I'm also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary, so if you're thinking about studying or pursuing a degree in advanced theological education, please get in touch with me at zgroff at gpts.edu. Today we continue our denominational debrief series for 2018. We're going to be talking about the 82nd Synod of the Bible Presbyterian Church, which was held on August 2nd to August 6th uh, in Lakeland Bible Presbyterian Church in Lakeland, Florida. I have with me on the phone uh, Dr. Kevin Backus. Dr. Backus, thank you for joining me. Great to be with you again. Although last year it was in person, so that was even more fun. Yes, it was. And uh, the audio quality, though, sounds pretty good this year. So as long as we don't get any interruptions, we should be good to go, and our listeners will benefit from hearing a little update about the BPs. Uh, Dr. Backus is pastor of the Bible Presbyterian Church on Grand Island, New York. He was my guest last year for the 2017 debrief. If you haven't listened to that and you want to get to know the Bible Presbyterian Church, I commend you uh, to that or refer you to that, as this year we're going to not spend as much time on introducing the denomination, rather getting down to to updates. He's a fellow with the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, or ACBC. He's been a member of the Bible Presbyterian Church since he became a Christian as a teenager, and he's been on the pastoral staff at uh, the BPC of Grand Island, New York, since um, 1982. He's been senior pastor there since 98. Last year, he was elected to join Joined the GPTS Board of Trustees, and this year he was elected as chairman of our Academic Affairs Committee. We're very glad to have him. He's uh, been a great blessing to the seminary in many ways, and very significantly, his church uh, has interning under Dr. Backus this year one of our recent graduates, Andy Wan. Who, uh, who hails from the Lakeland BPC, where Synod was held this year. Dr. Backus, very briefly, for the benefit of our listeners who are unfamiliar with the Bible Presbyterian Church and maybe haven't had an opportunity to listen to last year's denominational debrief, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the history and distinctives of the, of the Bible Presbyterian Church? Sure. The Bible Presbyterian Church reflects the continuing uh, historical Northern Presbyterian Church, uh, a very confessional church. Uh, we came out of the mainline church with the OPC in the early, in the early uh, 30s and uh, mid-30s. And then uh, shortly after we come out together at the death of Machen, uh, the Bible Presbyterian Church was organized. And so if you take a look uh, and get to know the Bible Presbyterian Church today, um, I kind of like the way the one Orthodox Presbyterian Church um, visitor to our, for many years to our synod says, uh, it's a place where the confessions live and breathe. And that's the, I think that's a good way to, to look at the Bible Presbyterian Church. What is the current relationship with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church today? Yeah, about 25 years ago, I started working on behalf of our synod with the, well, actually a little more than 25 years ago, I started working with the um, Orthodox Presbyterian Church to go back and to rebuild our relationship. And uh, after 25 years, the two denominations uh, entered into full fraternal relations. Um, from our perspective, that's a good good spot to be. We're not our view on fraternal relations uh, is that we can work together with other denominations without being compelled to view that as an avenue to organic union. So uh, we're very happy to consider them a sister church. 
Um, they have helped us in uh, seminars and church planting. Uh, we work to give a memorandum of understanding for disaster relief. So I've just been contacted about the hurricanes going on. If things go in a certain direction, we helped out last year with people and funds. We'll do that again this year automatically. Um, so we're really thrilled about that kind of a relationship. And I think that they would say that we've been faithful to them um, in defending their reputations when it, when people in our circles have cast aspersions on the OPC, things of, na of that nature. So it's a, it's a very warm uh, relationship, and I'm glad that we're able to continue that for the glory of God. From the seminary's perspective, we praise the Lord for that relationship and for the benefit it is to our students, as uh, we have uh, more Bible Presbyterian students uh, studying alongside of Orthodox Presbyterian and Presbyterian Church in America students here, and uh, without really wavering in their commitments to their different churches. So th this is a, a healthy ecumenism and something that we hope to see continue to be fostered among our students and in the courts of these various denominations in the future. Now, how many congregations are in the Bible Presbyterian Church today, and where are they located? Well, approximately, uh, you know, with a broad definition, 28. There's 23 uh, organized churches, including one in Yangon, Myanmar. There are six church plants going on in various parts of the world. Four, four of them are in Yangon or in uh, Myanmar, and uh, two of them in the United States right now. Um, and that's in part because we've received a number of churches that have been particularized. So we have um, a church plant going on in St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, that actually came to us from the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, we just saw uh, two churches come in last year uh, from the PCA in Tennessee. Uh, we've got another church that was independent in Greer, Greenville area that's become part of the Bible Presbyterian Church, and a new church plant in Orlando that's been particularized. So that's been a, a really joyous year at our synod. Um, we had six ministers there who had never been to, to our synod before. That sounds like a small number for other people. It's a large number when you, when you have uh, 49 ministers totally. And uh, five of those were from churches that were new churches to our denomination. If I'm right in understanding this, the church in St. Paul is, uh, is pastored by a Greenville grad, right? Correct. The church in St. Paul is pastored by a Greenville grad. Um, someone on the pastoral staff in Orlando was a Greenville grad, and uh, one of the young men that just graduated last year that you mentioned who was originally from Lakeland is a member of our church, did an internship with us before. He's just finished his internship now, and we've, uh, we're, we're telling him that we're going to intend to give him a call when he gets ordained to stay with us. And that's great. And the, the pastor of the independent church here in Greer, South Carolina, is uh, a Greenville grad from, from long ago. He was one of our first students and, and s slowly worked on his degree as he was uh, working full-time in business. And, um, and we have a student interning, a first-year student interning with that congregation of the Bible Presbyterian Church today. And that's really just, the church is 10, 15 minutes up the road from us. So we hope to hope to continue to, to see a development of the relationship there and a building up of, uh, of the Bible Presbyterian Church as, um, as the Lord continues to bless uh, the brothers in that denomination. Now, who attends the BPC Synod? Well, all ministers are expected to attend, as well as uh, at least one elder representative from every congregation. This, you know, in the previous year, I think we had more elders than ministers, or pretty close to a, a parity. This year, it was uh, about half as many elders as ministers. That was just simply due to events going on in the lives of the, the elders. And 
it probably had to do at least something with the proximity or the location. Last year, you all were meeting in um, in Canada, which is closer to the the hub of uh, of concent- or concentration of Bible Presbyterian churches up in the northwest of yes, the United States. Yes, it has States. moved that direction. Correct. Yeah. And so down in in Florida, I know there's a a good concentration of Bible Presbyterian churches there as well, but uh, not as many as as up in the Pacific Northwest, if memory serves me right. That's correct. The Bible Presbyterian Church, like the RCUS, usually assigns a theme to its worship services, and so each each sermon is is linked to the other sermons that are being preached during uh, during your synod. What was the theme for worship services this year? Yeah, we have three or four services a day, and um, our theme this year was based on the 400th anniversary of continual electo preaching in some of the uh, Swiss churches. So the moderator signed uh, preaching through the book of Matthew as the theme for this particular synod. And just in case some of our listeners aren't familiar with the term, can you explain what continua electio preaching is and why it's significant? Yeah, they, you know, it's that it, it's a fancy name for probably the way most reformed people were taught to preach. You know, in order to give the teaching of the whole counsel of God, you you start preaching at the beginning of a book and you preach through the book until you come to the end of the book and then you go to a different book. And uh, you don't leave out the parts that are hard or overemphasize your favorite passages. And so that's what we did. We, uh, Although, because there wasn't time to go through the entire Gospel of Matthew, um, we did have to jump around a little bit at the Synod. Well, that's really good. I like that creative application of continual electio preaching that wouldn't have occurred to me if I was planning a Synod. So it sounds like you have some folks that are a bit more creative than, than I am anyway. Can you provide us with an overview of what happened over the course of the Synod, highlighting any particularly significant decisions that were made, business that was addressed, or resolutions that were delivered? Sure. Um, our missions, uh, Presbyterian Missionary Union is uh, about to go through a transition this year, and our director of many years is going to hand over to Casey Sutherland, uh, who is an, on the staff at the Cincinnati Bible Presbyterian Church. It's a Grace Bible Presbyterian Church in Sharonville, Ohio. And so that was one thing we're making provision for. Of course, dealing with um, the reception of a number of new churches at our synod was a real joy, and that was a part of uh, a, a welcoming them into our synod. And then um, on the foreign field, we've finished up our missions overseas this year in China and Cambodia. Our uh, church in Myanmar, Yangon, Myanmar, has been particularized, and the minister is not on support anymore. He's no longer a missionary, but he is helping us oversee um, the three church plants that were left in the orphanage that's there. And then uh, this year, there's the beginning of a new church plant in Yangon. So there'll be a second church in the in what is the really the largest um, city that's there. So we're, we're really excited about that. Um, we are uh, continuing fraternal relations with uh, the Reformed Presbyterian Church, Hanover Presbyterian, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, both of those at a full uh, level of uh, relationship. We had um, level two corresponding relations with the Presbyterian Church in Brazil, and Heritage Reformed congregations were at level one. The Synod voted once again to send um, official observers to NAPARC this year, so we're looking forward to continuing that status with NAPARC. Um, Probably uh, when it comes to other significant items, uh, while we had a a number of, of missions maturing, um, we're, we voted to begin a new mission uh, approach overseas, and so we approved a Greenville grad, uh, Louis Kluta, as a missionary to South Africa, and his intention is to go back by 2020 and to begin doing church planting work um, in South Africa. 
among the Afrikaans people. Yeah, Louis is uh, is actually going to be here with us at the seminary to preach in chapel and to speak about the work that the Bible Presbyterian Church is extending to him uh, over our lunch break on Wednesday. So we're looking forward to to hearing hearing from him on Wednesday, hearing him preach and encouraging him as he as he prepares to engage in the work in in South Africa. So. Uh, that was exciting for me to hear, and, and I know Dr. Pipe is very excited about that as well. Um, Greenville Seminary, um, like, the, like the Bible Presbyterian Church, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and the Presbyterian Church in America, and the ARP, like all of our confessional Presbyterian churches here in the United States, uh, really values missions. And any way that we can partner with confessional Presbyterian denominations to advance the kingdom of, of Jesus Christ around the world and to um, preach a Reformed faith according to the Scriptures is something that we can get behind and that we're very excited about. So there, I'm looking at the list of resolutions, and you, you really hit on a whole lot of of some of the action from Synod, but there, there's one on here that has caused a little bit of a stir online after being posted or shared on the Aquila Report, and that is this Resolution 82-07 uh, on the Doctrine of Justification. Can you tell us a little bit about what was behind this particular theological resolution, what controversies you were addressing, what audiences you're seeking to help by it, and um, and and what the adoption of it at Synod looked like. Sure. Uh, that actually came up through my presbytery, and um, uh, I think it's just a correct uh, maybe one or two statements. Like every Presbyterian body, nothing's ever passed unanimously. It could be passed without dissent if there was a vote. Another one of our actions was passed without dissent. This was just normal. It wasn't something that spent uh, really occupied much time with the Synod. Uh, it came up. It was uh, read to the body. Um, they had it in their hands ahead of time. They read it. It came up, and it was passed. Um, what was the thrust of it? The It's interesting to me that the author, um, original author, or at least one of the original authors, would say that um, he, he came from a Baptistic background and came into the Reformed faith um, largely at first because of some, some of the works of John Piper. And so uh, no one in our synod was suggesting that Piper uh, is not a, a believer or, or is a heretic um, at all. Uh, but there is a history um, in the evangelical world of people sometimes who are soteriologically Calvinistic and theologically oriented to spend time considering the relationship between um, justification and sanctify and sanctification, but the relationship between um, justification by faith alone and by and then what role do works play at all? And uh, I remember when the federal vision statement came up, I got called by some of the people who were getting caught up in that or accused of that, and you know they were just trying to they were trying to respond to people in their pews who were. Um, taking the attitude that as long as I made a profession of faith, it doesn't matter how I live. And that was an error on one side of, of the issue. Um, what, what we seem to be looking at now is another attempt to, to how do we talk about that? How do we deal with that? And I, I don't spend a lot of time reading John Piper, and I, I'm not a person who reads blogs 
Um, so I'm kind of unaware of some of these things, but you know, going back to the early 80s, um, Dr. Piper has certainly been discussing in the public venue the relationship between works and justification, not works and salvation, but works and justification. Um, I think we all have an understanding that there is the final judgment. We all have an understanding that there is sanctification that, you know, some people don't like the phrase synergistic, it's too simplistic, but that it's the Holy Spirit working in and through us. And yet, nonetheless, we're the ones that are going to grow in grace uh, in our lives, and we're encouraged to do that. Um, and we recognize that without holiness, we won't see God. All those things are true. But we have some very clear historical confessional statements about justification being a forensic act by God and that that forensic act is based solely on the work of Christ. And trying to insert works and link works in any way with justification uh, really becomes very confusing. Um, and yeah, it's probably not confusing. Some people, somebody showed me a blog, somebody had written in, um, you know, well, if you want to comment on these things, maybe if you got a theological education and wrote peer review articles, you know, then maybe you can do that. Well, you know what? The audience that are reading these statements from some of these evangelicals and, and Dr. Piper included are not the, the people who've had that theological education and experience hammering things out in peer reviewed articles, it's at least not them alone. Um, it's certainly not written in ways that targets that. It's written for general dissemination. And the reason this came up was that in some congregations, because of these works that are being recently published, there was confusion among people in the pews. And the pastors in some churches were having to correct that more than once. And they believed that this trying to insert, as somebody said, this division into the doctrine of justification to somehow link works with the doctrine of justification is unhelpful. Um, and somebody would go, so they would go so far as to say intolerable. We shouldn't do that. And uh, like some of the other issues that we faced in this in this realm of late, uh, in these last few years, as many that have occupied the attention of the church at great length, that did get over into an area that was heretical. I, I believe that uh, a quick solution for many people is to come back and say, let's be content to teach what the scriptures teach and let's use the language that we find in the confessions. So this wasn't really a controversial thing at the Synod. I, I know this is probably the one piece of news that's made it to the broader Reformed world, and it's and it was something that came up, there was no discussion, maybe a couple questions, and then passed. That's about it. And it, it was really intended to help people in the pews who are wrestling through uh, the the issues or the theological contours, I guess, of of soteriology, uh, addressing the controversy over some, over a blog post written by John Piper earlier this year. But be, by the nature of Presbyterianism, we're not particularly nimble because we only meet a couple times a year. You uh, you addressed it in early August rather than when the controversy first arose in early spring or winter or whatever. Yeah, and maybe that's when the controversy arose this time, but you know, there have been controversial statements uh, from that author for many, many years. And I think it finally was just starting to reach into the pews in our church, our churches, and so there was an attempt to address that. Well, I know for the, the benefit of some of our listeners, when when they see this kind of statement in a reference to, to Dr. Piper in particular, they're remembering— um, I want to say this 
delicately and carefully because it's not really something that occupied a lot of my attention, and I admit that as well. But they remember a back and forth between a number of um, a number of authors, bloggers, even seminary professors, and, uh, and 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 reformed authors earlier this year that that kind of blew up in a really unfortunate way and caused a lot of acrimony in their formed world. But it doesn't sound like the Bible Presbyterian Church was trying to wade into into that clash of personalities and individuals. It really just sounds like they're trying to put forth to the best of their ability a, a clear statement to help their own church members. Well, that was how it was presented to me when it was presented at our presbytery, that this is something that is beginning to have an impact on our church members, and we want to make a statement that will be helpful to them. Very good. Moving on from that issue, what were some of the big issues that occupied a lot of time at Synod this year? Well, probably the one that I think occupied maybe the most of our time was um, in a committee, uh, probably about five hours of meeting, not what we were, not what one might expect, but we were dealing with um, a sister church in another country, and some decisions made at their highest level um, that we believed were either um, loose on the confession uh, or were targeting um, some confessional people. And so the Senate quietly wrote a letter to um, to their committee, and, um, and and our hopes is that there will be some change, that it would be an encouragement to that, um, to call some people back to what we consider to be confessional faithfulness in an area, and that to be careful about dealing with others who are confessional. Um, I'm not, at this point, without getting into any details, I'm not really hopeful on how that's trending at the moment, but the Lord can um, can certainly make a difference. But when you enter into a fraternal relationship, it's it needs to have real practical value. It's it's not just, you know, well, wonderful, we're going to send a letter to each other every 10 years. Um, but we really do want to either encourage each other, help each other, work together. And sometimes that might mean to admonish one another. And, and this particular church uh, you mentioned is, is an international church or a denomination in another country. Yeah, it's not in the United States. Yeah, and, and they're wrestling with issues of... Uh, I would say not even they're not nitty gritty minor you know points of doctrine or disagreement in in terms of confessional theology. I mean, the, the issue that's at stake here is a pretty major one that strikes at the vitals of our understanding of the relationship between Christ and the Church and the relationship of uh, of men and women in the Church and and their different roles and functions according to what the Word of God directs us to do. Right, but we've we've addressed that privately at the end, so you know I'm not going to get into which church or or even specify the issues too much, but yeah, we we didn't do it because we're trying to nitpick with another church, you know. Our perspective is that it's a serious issue, uh, serious enough that it could affect our relationship, and we want to you know ask their help in addressing that in their body. Um, other denominations may say it's you know it's a tempest in a teapot. Um, that would be up to them. Your course of action seems very reasonable, and and I appreciate that your synod um, made correspondence with that body to to address really is a, a serious departure from historic Presbyterian understandings of ministry and and ecclesiology, and uh, and just the doctrine of of the church and Christ's headship over the church. So really, both issues have one thing in common, and in in both cases. Um, we were concerned about 
just concerned about confessional faithfulness, whether it was the resolution we wrote or whether it was the body we contacted. Um, we're just trying to encourage people that we care about to be faithful confessionally. We've hammered out a couple of uh, a couple of issues. One was the justification issue, which came up because it was covered on the Aquila report, and the other one uh, was this interdenominational um, back and forth. Were there any other major decisions or resolutions that you would want our listeners to know about coming out of the BPC? No, just the um, uh, continuation and advancement of our, our mission by uh, the trans by transferring our uh, directorship and then our establishing a new mission with one of your graduates in South Africa. That's a big, uh, big step for us, and we're excited about that. And then just the, conti- the continuation of um, some of the church plants that were started to see them be particularized, and then, Lord willing, to see some more plants started both here and abroad this year. Yeah, I love the missionary impulse of the Bible Presbyterian Church. Last year, um, we spoke at length about it, and again, I I recommend our listeners to go back and listen to the 2017 denominational debrief to get some of the background information. But um, for uh, a relatively small denomination, you seem to really pack a big punch when it comes to foreign missions, and that's that's really encouraging. Well, God's been gracious to bless uh, our, our attempts, and especially to give us the kind of people who are deeply committed to preaching the gospel of Christ for the glory of God and to, and to build churches. As you, as you see, as you witness the growth of the Bible Presbyterian Church, and particularly here in the United States, and as, as your ranks swell and as, as new churches come in or are planted and established, do you see uh, any shift in the culture of the Bible Presbyterian Church? Or, or maybe put more positively, uh, what are you most hopeful about for the future as the denomination hopefully continues to grow? Well, I'm certainly hopeful that um, while we bring in people who are trained, you know, we were trained pretty much one place at one time. Um, we're bringing in people. There is certainly a deepening appreciation for the Reformed faith. And so when I look at the commitments that have grown in the Bible Presbyterian Church in the span of my lifetime's ministry, I've watched the church become a place where we, we love the confession, we love the Reformed faith, where it's increasingly embraced and taught by our, um, well, it's all by all our ministers, but then also by elders and by it's pushing down into the to the pews. So I'm I'm excited about that. And the the wonderful thing is that every um, church that is coming into the BPC is coming to us for those reasons. So as they come in, they're coming, they're they're coming to us because they they want a place where. They're going to find people who are committed to the confession, who are committed to literal six-day creation, who are committed. You know, those are the things that uh, they're they're looking for when they come, and that we're not debating these things endlessly. We're not looking for new ways to reformulate the doctrines that are already affirmed by us in the confession. Uh, We're not getting involved in the kind of thing we talk about in in this um, resolution. Um, And so that deepening commitment is only being um, supported by and, and extended by those who come in and join us. And then um, on top of that, there recently there's some who've come in that have a 
probably the ability to help us be even more effective in diaconal ministry. And so we're looking at ways to develop a, a network that will uh, help our churches across the country cooperate in times of disaster and and need to do more effective diaconal work. Praise the Lord. That That is all wonderful news. And, you know, usually I would ask you know, what's the single most encouraging takeaway from Synod and, and any final thoughts? But I think I know for you that the most encouraging takeaway would be the advancement of foreign missions and just the, the continuing uh, growth and maturity of the Bible Presbyterian Church, especially as yep. you establish, maintain, and, and cultivate fraternal relations with other bodies. But since I have you on the line and you are our new uh, chairman of the Academic Affairs Committee for Greenville Seminary, I want to give you a platform to talk a little bit about um, a new emphasis that that the seminary is seeking to develop or roll out on um, equipping men to be chaplains. This is something I know that that you're really involved with yourself at the local level, and we have we've always in our history produced chaplains for the U.S. Armed Forces, and a lot of our ministers go into small communities and towns where they function as uh, pl- chaplains to the police department, the fire department, hospitals. Um, what you know, without getting into nitty gritty of the details about a chaplain's uh, a chaplaincy concentration here or anything like that uh, what are some what are some things or some key areas that a divinity program needs to really focus on to equip men specifically as chaplains yeah i'm a, the senior chaplain of the 14th largest sheriff's office in the nation so um, i have some connection with chaplaincy and it blends well with the <clears throat> counseling emphasis that we have as well uh, at the seminary. So, the, however, I, I will tell you that um, in spite of the fact that I had a good seminary training um, and good training as a counselor and many years of service as a pastor, when the sheriff of my county asked me to become a chaplain, I uh, sent myself to a chaplain's uh, training academy because the kinds of issues that chaplains deal with, and I'm most familiar with law enforcement chaplains, but that translates also over to, and we have people on the board who are, are connected with um, military chaplains, but the people who, who deal with this are dealing with situations that the average church pastor um, certainly isn't equipped to handle and isn't trained to handle. And I don't mean that um, we need, that the Word of God isn't sufficient, but <clears throat> the Word of God isn't really telling me how to behave at a crime scene. When I, when I walk onto a crime scene, you know, and the Word of God isn't telling me about protocol with inmates and et cetera. And so there's a, a, a really, um, you know, how, how to behave and interact with law enforcement at the moment that there's a, a crisis going on. And so those are, those are some special skills sets that um, if somebody is intending to work uh, regularly, full-time with chaplaincies, that you know they're going to want to become acquainted with, and especially the kinds of issues and pressures that are going to affect um, departments and personnel in those departments. And when you say that the Word of God doesn't tell you uh, how to behave at a crime scene or or how to deal with inmates, what what you mean is the the nuts and bolts the protocols. protocols. Yeah, I mean the legal protocols. Yes. Because when you step into chaplaincy, um, and this is a real interesting, maybe from a I would be interesting to hear what a, a two kingdoms perspective on on chaplaincy is. But when you step into a chaplaincy, you're you're kind of have one foot in the ecclesiastical sphere, and that's you're firmly uh, grounded there. But you also have a foot over in the civil sphere, 
where you're, you're donning a uniform or a badge and, and you have to engage in a particular way as a minister of the gospel, but also as a representative of, of civil authority. Um, it's a very interesting mix and one that I'm not altogether familiar with, but one that certainly intrigues me as I think about my own ministry in the future after graduation as well. Yeah, a number of our Bible Presbyterian ministers are finding it's a, you know, a profitable out evangelistic outreach into the community because it certainly involves us um, on a regular basis with people who need to know Christ. And people who wouldn't darken the doors of a church otherwise. Yep. I mean, it takes some time and obviously it takes some administrative know-how to be able to, to navigate through all of that you know, all the paperwork and bureaucracy that comes with the civil magistrate. But um, like you said, it's profitable. And the men that I've known that have done it, either in the military or in a municipal government or even at the state government, have all uh, told me just how useful it is and how interesting some of the conversations they get into with, uh, with, with men, that, men and women who hold public office or who, uh, who are engaged in public service in some way. It's an exciting time, and I'm very thankful for the doors that it opens for for ministry. Well, Dr. Backus, I know this has been um, this is we've really packed a lot into a short period of time here, but this has been helpful for me to get a glimpse of what is going on in the Bible Presbyterian Church at the end of 2018. And I hope this is helpful to our listeners as they as they get uh, an inside scoop, as it were, um, into the goings-on of the Bible Presbyterian Church and recent developments coming out of Synod. I really thank you for your time. Do you have any closing thoughts before uh, before I cut off the podcast? No, I'm just looking forward to continuing to see the, the work that Greenville Seminary is doing and to see the impact that it makes in the lives of students um, it, it, this year, a number of whom are finding their way into the Bible Presbyterian Church. And uh, we're thankful for for at least uh, four ministers who found their way to work with us, particularly in this year, and for the impact that they're making for the kingdom. And I trust that they have found it to be a home that's, uh, that, that is consistent with the things that they learned while they were with you. From what I've heard from uh, Steve Hill and the men at Living Hope Presbyterian Church here in Greer, um, they've really felt welcomed by the Bible Presbyterian Church, and for that, uh, we're all thankful. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.